Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you. My goodness, of all the things you could be doing on a July 4th weekend, uh, you've chosen to be here with us at Grand Point. want to welcome you into this house today. For those of you who are joining us online, uh, thank you so much for joining us as well, just being a part of us. Maybe you're even out on vacation and uh, you've chosen to join with us. Thank you for being here. I know uh, last week when we gathered, there were some of you who were expecting us to make some kind of a statement or maybe even enter into some form of celebration over the Supreme Court ruling versus, Ro- 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 versus Wade. Our silence was not because we did not want to talk about it or we not, w- would not talk about it. I was not here. I was not on last weekend. And furthermore, one of the things that we attempt to do by having three campuses and three different speakers, is we like to make sure that we're on the same page. We like to collaborate when it comes to issues or statements that are being made. And frankly, we just really didn't have time to do that with some people being away uh, last week. Now, what I want to do today, though, is talk to you a little bit about that and uh, maybe even create some kind of a position statement or uh, just kind of from our hearts where we stand on that. Most of you will know and agree that here at Grand Point Church, we always, always, always celebrate life. We celebrate the life that's, that's, that begins at conception. We celebrate the life of those kids that we serve here in Kids Point. We celebrate the lives of our junior and senior high school students. We celebrate the lives of our college students and single adults and adults who are in the parenting stage and all the way to the day that you breathe your last. We celebrate uh, that life with you. It's kind of our mission. In fact, we make that our mission here at Grand Point Church because that was the mission of Jesus. He said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. That's the celebration that we have, and we believe that that life is, is for everyone. So we, we, I will say to you, we have a deep and unwavering commitment to the sanctity of life, but that means that we also value the lives of those who have chosen to take a path different than ours. Perhaps different than maybe what we believe, different from what we understand, different from what we hold, and, and uh, you know, we celebrate those lives as well. I don't know if you remember the story from John chapter 8, where there's this group of religious people somehow caught this woman in the act of adultery, right? And they brought this woman to Jesus and said, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery, right? And the penalty for that is for her to be killed. And so they're picking up the stones, getting ready to stone her. Now, if you know the context of that story, it wasn't necessarily about the woman and adultery as much as it was their attempt to trap Jesus in a theological contest. But besides that, you know, they brought this woman, and this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was an adulterer, right? And here are these religious people, right, ready to stone her. And Jesus stands in the gap between the guys holding the stones and this woman caught in adultery. And it's where he says those famous words, he who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Now, I don't know what it was like there on that scene or what it, but, you know, how that all worked out, but I can just picture the scene. There was this sudden contemplation, like, oh, gosh, we're, we've been had, right? We're all sinners, and, you know, who are we to judge this person because they did something, you know, that was breaking the law, and one guy drops his stone, and the next guy drops his stone, and pretty much pretty, after a while, all the stones are dropped, and then they, and they walk away. And then Jesus turns to this woman 
And she says, and he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Uh, go and sin no more. Now, the reason I interject that story in here is because we want Grand Point Church to be a place where everyone is welcome to come into, regardless of what you've done in your past, regardless of where you are in your life right now, we want you to be able to come here uh, and, and not feel condemned. We want you to become, we want you to come here and feel accepted, not, not what you did, but you as an individual because we value your life. We want you to come in here because this is where we, we heal. This is where we find answers. This is where we open the Bible and we go straight to the gospel, which brings life, right? And we want everyone to feel free to step into that. So I know that there are many people, maybe some in this room, who have, for some reason, chosen the path of abortion in the past. And I don't know, you know, we could ask the question, is, is taking someone's life a sin? Well, yes, it is. But so is idolatry. So is adultery. So is filthy language. So is covetousness and all of those things that just characterize our lives. And those are the things that we want to find healing for as we come into the context of a church where the body of Christ comes together around the gospel, the true gospel, and it works through all of our weaknesses, our brokenness, our sin, and brings life, brings life. Yes, we value. We value the life of the preborn child. But we also value the lives of every person that walks in here. Uh, those of you that are watching online, wherever you've come from. And so, yes, we can celebrate. We can celebrate with the Supreme Court and the decision that they made regarding, you know, that overturn. And, you know, it's, it's a great thing. It is something that we want to celebrate. But it has ended the constitutional protection for abortion, but it has not ended the legalization of abortion. And the decision that was made by the Supreme Court has not changed the human heart. In fact, what it, is, it has actually highlighted what I believe is fast becoming the all-American lie that you have the right to do with your body whatever you want to do. I have this poster hanging in my office at home, and it's a, it's a scripture poster from 1 Corinthians uh, 6, ver chapter, verse 20. I believe that's the scripture. And it says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You know what that price was? Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless, guiltless son of God who gave up every one of his rights so that you and I might have life. And then, it, then the scripture ends by saying, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies are not our own. They're not ours to do with what we want. They have been bought. They are now owned by Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, and therefore we owe it to him as to what we do with, with our bodies. So yes, we applaud the wisdom and the courage in, of, of the women and the men of the Supreme Court. In fact, I've written to them this week, and I applauded their courage to lead with an over, you know, a, a very unpopular decision uh, that was, you know, egregiously wrong from the very beginning. But that decision does not bring about the change that we need in America. So while we celebrate a, a Supreme Court decision, here's what I want to do today. I want to make sure that we as a body also commit ourselves to engage faithfully across a deep and often painful difference with wisdom, with empathy, showing tolerance for one another in love. 
It's not to say that we're accepting, we're not accepting sin. No, we stand firm for the truth here at Grand Point Church. But I believe the truth, the truth is the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ just being worked out in ways that bring restoration and bring healing and bring hope to lives and to our nation. And I believe, and I believe we would all acknowledge today that the one that ultimately deserves our applause today is Jesus Christ and his power to restore hearts and to restore life that was broken and robbed by sin. Amen? Amen. Amen. And on this 4th of July weekend, we celebrate our independence as a nation. We celebrate our freedoms. You know, I think it's even greater that we celebrate the freedom that Jesus Christ brings because of his ultimate sacrifice made, uh, because of him giving up his rights for us. And so I just want you to join me as we just pray over our nation today, pray over our Supreme Court, pray over those who have that difficult authority and responsibility to lead a very diverse people. Let's pray together. God, as we gather here in this room this morning, we recognize that uh, you are the only one that is worthy of pledging our allegiance to, and we do that today. God, we're so grateful, though, for the country that we live in. We're so grateful for what America stands or stood for and the men and women who have given their lives uh, sacrificially so that we can live in a free country. But God, we thank you most of all for the, for the freedom that you brought to us because we can live in a free country and still be bound up in, the, in this problem of sin. But you have come to destroy evil. You've come to destroy death. And you've come to give us life. And we celebrate that today. God, we do thank you, though, that while we live in this country, we have this system of government that we, as your people, have elected. And we've put them into place to lead us and govern us temporarily. And so we just want to honor them today. We want to pray over them. Uh, they do have some huge decisions to make and some hard places to go as they lead a very divided people. As they try to decide what is best for the most of, of us and lead in ways but that, that are honoring to you. God, I pray that our elected leaders would walk humbly and do justly and serve you and love you in the, in the ways that, that they know how to do. And we pray for our president, we pray for our Supreme Court, we pray for our senators and governors and those who are leading this nation, and we just pray over their lives today and pray that as we celebrate this weekend of freedom in America and celebrate with, with fireworks and remembrances that it would just bring back, bring back memories of what our nation stood for and how we can just serve you in it. God, this morning now as we turn our attention to you and to the people gathered here, to those watching online today, we're so grateful again for the ability to gather here freely, to open your word, learn from it, and be challenged by it so that we might go from this place as people who are more committed and faithful in serving you with our lives. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, welcome back to our series of messages called You Ask For It. Uh, for, you that, for those of you that are new and maybe just came in here for the first time, what we're doing this summer is we've accumulated or we've, we've collected some questions that you have been asking and then we're just answering them. And today we're in week number four. It's hard to believe that we're a month into this already. And today's question is, do I have to give money to the church in order to tithe? 
Or can I tithe in some other way? Can I just give my, my time or can I give something else? It's a story about money today. And you know what? This was not my choice. You asked for it. It's yours. It's your series. So here we go. Now listen, every time a pastor or preacher talks about money, there's some problems that are kind of inerrant with it. But chief among those problems is, is uh, kind of boredom. You already think you know what I'm going to say when it comes to talking about money and giving to the church, and you already have your answers formulated. So you're not really going to, this is not really going to change your mind or do anything at all. I don't know if you've ever heard the story about Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was this very charismatic leader, also the 32nd president of the United States, and uh, he just he, he just found it horrible, right, standing in greeting lines and greeting all the people, like when he had meetings at the White House or reception, he'd have to stand there and greet everyone as they came out. And he, became, he grew weary of all the compliments and things that people would say because he was convinced that they weren't really listening to him. And, and they weren't really, you know, didn't really, you know, you know, know what he was saying. And so he decided to do an experiment one time. After one reception, he decided that when he would shake hands with people, he would murmur the words, I murdered my grandmother this morning. I murdered my grandmother this morning. And so he did that. And so uh, people started coming through the reception line, and he'd reach out and shake their hand, and then he would murmur and say those words, I, I murdered my grandmother this morning. Well, several hundred people went through the line, and as he would say that, they would say, congratulations. Man, we're so proud of you. You're doing a wonderful job. God bless you. He finally got to the end of the line, and here came the ambassador from Bolivia. And when President Roosevelt shook his hand and said, I murdered my mother today, this morning, the ambassador leaned over, whispered in his ear, and said, I'm sure she had it coming. Right? <laughs> but when I start talking about money, most of us are like the other guests. We think we know what's going to be said, and we don't pay much attention to it because we're pretty sure we've heard it all before, and we already have our response planned. Penny and I love to have coffee on our front porch. We're front porch people. Uh, not too many people in our neighborhood are, but we love the front porch, and we greet people as they walk past, joggers as they come by. And during the school year, we actually try to talk to school students. I remember one morning, uh, we're talking to this high school student. At the end of the conversation, we're like, hey, have a great day at school today. And her response was, you too. You too. We're not going to school. But it was just that she wasn't listening to us, right? She was kind of giving her response. Before you give me a you too response to this message today, I want to invite you to listen in because I may say some things about giving today that will startle you, maybe, but hopefully encourage you. It might be something new. But I want to talk. I want to answer this question. And it's a good question. It's a really good question. Do I need to give my money to the church in order to tithe? And so there's a lot of follow-up questions about that as well. It's a good question because there's a lot of confusion over this issue. You'll go to one church and you'll hear one pastor say this. You'll go to another church, you'll hear another pastor say that. You can pick up a book and it will say, man, no, tithing is, is definitely something that everyone should be doing. It is binding in all Christians today and Christians should be tithing without exception. You'll read another book and it, and it says, no, 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 tithing belongs under the law, has no relevance for Christians whatsoever today. And you'll find people all along the spectrum between these two positions. So it's important for us to know that because I want you to settle this in your own heart and your own mind about what it means to give to the Lord. Second, I believe this is an important question because of the financial condition of churches in America. 
Available statistics indicate that American church members of all denominations give an average of 2% of their income to charities. And that includes the Community Chest, the Boy Scouts, the Red Cross, the United Way, as well as churches and synagogues. They give an average of 2%. So before I preach this message today, I went to Tony Deal, our business guy at the church. He's the guy who monitors receipts and expenses here at the church. And I said, Tony, can you just run some numbers real quick and give me, give me some kind of a, an average on what the giving percentage is with the people of Grand Point Church. And so he ran some averages. Now, obviously, we don't know what your income is, and we don't know what you give specifically, but we just took some rounded off numbers. And Tony came back and said, I believe it's between somewhere, somewhere between four and five percent. So congratulations, Grand Point Church. You are well above the national average, right? And uh, appreciate your your generosity. Now, I know that some people here give far more than 10% tithe. I know that some of you give a tithe, but it's divided between the church and other places. And there's some of you that have still yet to learn the act of grace giving. You've not, you've not been able to give anything. And for whatever, wherever you are in that spectrum, I want you to listen in today because I want to give us a kind of a foundational message and guideline when it comes to, uh, to giving. Now, the third reason I believe this is an important question is because of doctrinal issues that are involved with it. And this is a paramount uh, issue that I want to talk about today. See, the real question is this. Since we know that tithing is an Old Testament principle, does it really have any relevance to those of us who live in the New Testament? Or to put it another way, since tithing principles and, and the, was given to the nation of Israel, what relevance does it have for those of us who are not Jews, not living in the land of Palestine? Now, obviously, behind those, the, the, there's even a, a bigger question that lurks behind those smaller ones, and that is simply this, okay? Tithing belongs to the age of the law. We now live in the age of grace. So is there any connection between those two? How do you relate those two concepts? Is there even a place for tithing in the age of grace, and is the tithe only money? So those are the questions that I want to attempt today as we get into this message. Now, let's begin with a quick definition. I want to make sure you know what I'm talking about here today uh, when we talk about tithing. It will help you know to, know to know that the word tithe comes from a Hebrew word which means one-tenth. That's what it is. It's simply one-tenth. Literally, a tithe is one-tenth of anything. In the Old Testament, a tithe was more than just giving 1% of your money to God. If you had 10 cows, you gave one out of 10 to God. You sacrificed that somehow to God. It, 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 that cow that you gave was your tithe. If you had 10 pounds of grain, the one pound that you gave to God was your tithe before God. So a definition of a tithe is one-tenth of anything. So to tithe your income is to give one-tenth of your income to God. Now, with that definition, I'm going to just uh, rush through, I, not, not too fast, but I want to rush through the Old Testament uh, passages that talk about tithing to give you an idea what God was up to when he initiated this, or even before God gave the commandment. Now, there's a lot of passages that I could use, but I'm going to just focus on four that I believe are, are the most important. And the first one is from Genesis chapter 14. And it's here we find the story of Abraham coming back from war. He had gone out to war against Ketolamar and some of his kings who were allied with him. And it was a bloody, bruising, vicious battle. But in the end, 
Abraham had triumphed. And now he's coming back with all the spoils of war. Man, he's coming back with the slaves he captured, the soldiers that he had taken into captivity, the food stuff that he gathered from the enemy, uh, the grain, the wine, the oil, cattle, and the sheep. With all these spoils, Abraham is coming back as the victorious general. And as he's coming back, all of a sudden, this most unusual character, a man by the name of Melchizedek, steps out to greet him. And we pick up this story in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, where it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Two symbols, right, that have significance. But he was a priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, if you know biblical theology, you know that Melchizedek shows up here in Genesis 14, in Psalm 110, and in the New Testament epistle of the Hebrews. And in the Hebrews passage, it is clear that Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a type or a pattern of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So here's where the two testaments perhaps interrelate. We don't know for sure who this guy is. He just shows up on the stages of history, and he interrupts Abraham as he's coming back from war. But he does introduce himself as a, as a priest of the Most High God, and then he blesses Abraham, and then he blesses God. And I want you to notice Abraham's response. At this time, right after that blessing, it says, Then Abraham gave him a tenth, or a tithe, of everything. That meant a tenth of the slaves, a tenth of the soldiers, a tenth of all the food stuff, the garments that he gathered, the gold and the silver, all the spoils of war. He gave a tenth to Melchizedek. We don't know what promoted, uh, prompted Abraham to do this because this is the first time that tithing shows up in the Bible. He was not commanded to do this. In fact, it was a voluntary act by Abraham, but he gives a tenth of his plunder to Melchizedek because he understands that Melchizedek represents God, and it was God who gave him the victory. So in the Old Testament, a tithe is a sign of personal submission to God in gratitude for all of his blessings. Now, let's skip 400 years ahead and go to the book of Leviticus, chapter 27. In verse 30, it says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or from the fruit trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithe, he must add a fifth of the value to it, the entire tithe of the herd and the flock. Every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He must not pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If he makes any substitution, both the animal and the substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. Now, we could talk a lot about what that means, but here's the, here, here's the part I want you to get. It says, these are the commands. These are the commands the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. Now, two things very quickly about this passage. First, it is clearly a part of the Old Testament law. What happened in Genesis 14 with Abraham was before the law. What happens in Leviticus with Moses is under the law. So this is a commandment given by God to the nation of Israel as part of the Mosaic law. Now, second, the tithe of the Old Testament was to encompass all of a man's possessions. It wasn't just the money that he gave to the temple or or to the Lord. Uh, It includes his livestock, his cows, sheep, wine, oil, grain, fruits, But a tithe was to be given back to God from everything. 
And the point of this from Leviticus is that God is very clear about what he wants. The Jews were to give him a tenth of everything. Now, fast forward another 40 years into the book of Deuteronomy chapter 14. We're a few years down the road now. 40 years have passed since the children of Israel are standing on the bank of the Jordan River and Moses is about to die. He knows it and he wants to give his people one last message. So here's the last message that he gives to them. One final message to the people of God. And he says in Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, be sure that you set aside a tenth of all your fields, produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place that he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. That last phrase reveals the purpose of the Old Testament tithe, that you may learn to reveal the Lord your God always. The Living Bible puts it this way. The purpose of the tithe is so that you may learn always to put God first in your life. That's the purpose of the tithe. It was never a legalistic regulation. This was never something that was considered an Old Testament tax. No, God had a very special purpose in asking for a tenth, and it was to teach his people to put him first. Now, let's move all the way to the very end of the Old Testament because we're running out of time, so we got to get to Malachi chapter 3. We're a thousand years down the road now. We started back in Genesis, we went to Leviticus, we went to Deuteronomy, and now we're going to quickly span 1,000 years of Jewish history and listen now as God speaks to his disobedient people, right? The nation of Israel did not always do things right. Man, they strayed from God's God's law. They did things their own way. They worshiped other gods, you know. They didn't get it right. And at this moment now, they're living in disobedience. And here's what God says to them. He says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, he asked him a rhetorical question. Will a man rob God? And of course, the implied answer is no. We're not even going to try to rob God. And yet God says, you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. And then he says to the nation of Israel, now you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Here's what I want you to do. God says, listen, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent tests from de- uh, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not cast their fruit says the Lord Almighty then all the nations out there will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land says the Lord Almighty Man this is such an amazing passage of scripture and it's describing God's economic plan Here is God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, saying to his people, you are robbing me in order to get more, but because you are robbing me, you end up with less. If you would dare to give me what belongs to me, I would bless you beyond all comprehension. You know what I believe God was saying here when he was talking about robbing him? I don't think it was God saying, hey, you're robbing me of money, but you're robbing me of the blessing to bless you. You're robbing me of my ability to bless you, right? Because I want to pour out. I want to give you so much. I have so many blessings for you, but because you dare not trust me, you're, 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 you're not trusting me, I can't do it. I can't do it because God's blessings are only for those 
who step out and, and live in faith. Now, let me take all four of those passages and kind of put them together. And I want to give you what I believe are three purposes of the tithe in the Old Testament. Why did, why did God do this? Why was this whole business about the tenth anyway? Well, I believe in relation to God, the tithe was meant to glorify God and recognize him as a source of all blessings. Man, God's people are so blessed, not just with physical blessings, but with the spiritual blessings that we receive from him. He's given us a lot too, not only people back then, but he's given us so much. The way that we can bless him and honor him with that is to, just to give back. Well, that's the story of Abraham. Well, second, in relation to God's people, the purpose of the tithe is to teach us to put God first in our lives. Man, this is a problem for people at all times. Man, to put God first. Like we always like put him maybe second or put him somewhere down the list. And if all else fails, then we we bring God into the picture. But no, we, we put God first and the tithe is a way to teach us how to do that. And then third, in relation to the nation of Israel, the purpose of the tithe is to ensure that God's work may be fully supplied. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food enough, right? Enough for the church, the synagogue, whatever, to do what they, they need to do. Now, that's the Old Testament. But the real question comes when we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, because we know that the tithe was an Old Testament teaching. What does the New Testament have to say about it? This is what we want to know, isn't it? Well, you might be surprised to know that the New Testament does not mention percentage giving. It does not talk about one-tenth. Now, we can make some comparisons. We can make some you know, cross-references, perhaps, but it doesn't specifically tell us that we are to give a tenth of everything or income to the Lord. However, there are some very significant passages of Scripture in the New Testament that I believe parallel or are comparatively uh, important to us as we move this. One of those would be 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, and I believe this contains one of the most concise teachings on this subject. And it says, now about the collection, right? About the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should lay aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So we might derive from this that the New Testament teaching is, first of all, giving is to be regular on the first day of every week. Giving is to be personal, each one of you. And giving is to be proportional, uh, uh, set aside a sum of money according to his, in keeping with his income. So Christian giving is regular, it's personal, and it is proportional. Now, you might say, so what is proportional giving? Well, proportional giving means that the more God blesses you, the more you're able to give. That's what we call New Testament grace giving. The more you're blessed, the more you're able to give. If you have little blessing financially or materially, then you're able to give a small portion. But if you are blessed the, with a bigger, the bigger portion, you're able to give. 10% is not the issue in the New Testament. Some Christians who are greatly blessed can give 15%, some 20, some 30. Penny and I know of a man who gave 90% of his income. It was kind of a reverse tithe. He lived off of 10%. See, the greater the proportion, the greater the giving. That's New Testament teaching. The standard of giving is higher in the New Testament because grace is always higher than the law. 
And so now you might say, okay, well then if grace giving exceeds tithing, does that mean that tithing is irrelevant for Christians? Where, where does this even come in? Should we even teach it? Should we even practice it? Let me quote from a wonderful book by Dr. Gene Getz called A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions. And this is what Dr. Getz has to say about tithing. This is a little bit lengthy, but stay with me because this all makes sense. He says, God's plan for Israel in the, New, in the Old Testament serves as a foundational model. Hang on to those two words. Foundational model regarding the way that Christians should view and use their material possessions today. To the God-fearing Jews, it simply meant that these people were committed to doing everything that they could to keep the Old Testament laws. And we can certainly assume that most of them, before they became Christians, practiced the Old Testament regulations regarding tithing, because it's what they were taught. But when these Jews became Christians, they would have naturally transferred their economic loyalty from Judaism to Christianity. It's no wonder we see the generosity of these people right in Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts, giving, because they were in the habit of giving regularly and systematically. It was part of their religious training. It was part of their commitment. Furthermore, they understood the grace of God. And it appears that they not only calculated tents, but on occasion, they generously gave total profits from the sale of certain properties. I mean, they, they sold land and they gave the money uh, to the church or to the Lord. Though the tithe system is never mentioned in the New Testament, it certainly influenced these Jewish Christians. In turn, church history reveals that these Old Testament giving patterns influenced the Gentile community of pagans as they also became Christians. Though the tithe laws were never perpetuated in Christianity as they were in the Old Testament, they have served as a model to Christians for regular systematic giving. We cannot ignore this model when we evaluate Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 16 when he says on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Today's Christians should consider the Old Testament model when determining their own giving patterns. Now, Dr. Getz, I believe, is right. Let's not throw the tithe out. Let's use it perhaps as a model or maybe a starting point for our giving. That might be our proportion, right, that we give at this time. Might be the tenth that we start with. But I want to summarize it this way. In the Old Testament, we have a command, but in the New Testament, that command becomes a model. In the Old Testament, we had a flat percent. In the New Testament, we are now living with unlimited uh, proportionate giving. What was a percentage has become a proportion. Now, I don't know where you land on this. I don't know how many of you are, you are tithers. Uh, I don't know how many of you are just grace givers, but I know that you're a very generous people. And to that, we thank you. But now some of you might be thinking, okay, I see how the New Testament kind of goes into this age of grace, but I love that promise. I love that blessing in the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 3. Right? I like that part of the Old Testament where it says that if you give generously, God will open the floodgates of heaven and just pour out so much into our lives that we won't be able to contain it all. Is there anything like that in the New Testament? Actually, there is. There is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, it says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the, what? Say it with me. Cheerful Cheerful giver. God loves the cheerful giver. That's fairly clear, isn't it? When you sow a little, you reap a little. You sow a lot, you reap a lot. He's talking about giving. Now look what he adds in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. There are four alls in that passage, right? All grace, all things, all times, all that you need. That's the promise of God for you when you give. But that's not all. Drop down to verse 10 and 11. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Man, the words in there are increase and enlarge and rich and generous. All that is the promise of God. That sounds to me like what Malachi chapter 3 was talking about, doesn't it? I think we have the same basic promise in the New Testament as we do in the Old. If you forget everything else about the message, remember this. God promises to abundantly bless Christians who practice generous giving. That's it. That's it. God promises to abundantly bless Christians who practice generous giving. Now, please note, disclaimer, these, notes are, or these blessings are not always material. Sometimes Christians who give generously still suffer. They go through some hard times. The giving is no guarantee that your life suddenly becomes a bed of roses. Don't let that fact mislead you. Last night when we were leaving the service, we were having a hallway conversation out here, and there was a family out here, and they were talking about this, about this six-foot black snake that they found kind of going up the side of their house. And so the kids called dad out to, to get the snake, and uh, they got it down without no problem. And, and the dad says, well, that's because we tithe, right? God protect us. <laughs> kind of just a joke on the message, but God's not going to promise you all blessings or even safety. Anytime you dare to give generously to God, though, you will never regret it. You will never regret it. You will never regret it because God is never man's debtor. He will pay you back. Press down, good measure, running over. How he does that is his business. It's not something that you can calculate. But these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 tell us that he will do it. Now, let me just give a few summary statements, and we're going to wrap this up. As we take a look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, this whole thing of giving, uh, one of the conclusions that I've come to is this. God has never, never meant tithing to be a burden. Never meant it to be a burden. In fact, he meant it to be a way that God's blessing could flow through you. I do not want anyone here at Grand Point to feel like you're under a burden. Man, the tithe is meant to be a blessing, not a straitjacket. Right? If you hear what I'm saying this morning, you feel under pressure, listen, it would be better for you to give 1% with joy than to give 10% under duress. Our financial management team may not like me saying that. But listen, you begin by giving 1%. If, if tithing is a burden to you, give 1%, but give it with joy, but ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about this idea of giving. Right? What might be the proportion that you are to give? 
right? Give the 1% and let God speak to your heart. You are free in Jesus Christ to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We are to give what God has prompted on our hearts to give. Every once in a while, I'll run across someone who makes sure that I know that the reason that they don't go to church is because all the church does is talks about money. Actually, we should probably talk about it more because Jesus does, right? In fact, any church that does not talk about or encourage the giving of grace or grace giving is depriving its members of the most blessed life because it is more generous to give than it is to receive. It truly is. I want to I want to invite you in this whole area of tithing. Let me just take the tithe for a moment. I know we said that that's Old Testament and the New Testament grace goes beyond the tithe, but let's just take the tithe as a starting point. Maybe there's some of you out there, you've, you ran the numbers, you calculated it, and you're convinced you can't afford to do it. There's no way that I can give that much money away. No, money, no way I can give that to the church. Well, listen, you can, you can calculate that all you want to. You'll, you'll always come to that conclusion. But I'll tell you what you can't calculate, and that is what God will do. You have no idea what God is prepared to do and ready to do in your life if you dare to give generously. Here's what I want you to do. I, want to just, I just want to propose a 90-day tithe challenge. Right? If you've never done it, try it for 90 days. For the next 90 days... You just determine that you're going to give God, you're going to give to the church, to some charity, one-tenth, one-tenth of your income, and you watch what God does. At the end of the 90 days, you can either, either continue tithing or you can stop. It's simple as that, but you'll never know if tithing works for you until you try it. Why not practice tithing for 90 days and see if God will not bless you the way that he said he would? Listen, I'm not going to promise you more money. I'm not going to promise that a new car is certainly going to show up in your driveway or anything like that. I can't guarantee that you're going to get a raise or that all of your bills will be paid. But I do believe that God will bless you beyond your expectations if you dare to take a step of faith in that area of giving. And if at the end of 90 days you don't like it, man, you feel pressure, feel like you're going broke or you don't think it works, you don't think that God hasn't kept his word to you, then go ahead and stop tithing. But just go back to whatever giving pattern you're following right now. I'm not going to guarantee that we're going to give you your money back. But listen, you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. But if God's word is true, you have everything to gain. Put God to the test and see what happens when you make him kind of the Lord of your finances, the Lord of your pocketbook. He's given some amazing promises. And I tell you, you are a blessing. You are a blessing to this church. You are a blessing to our community by your generosity. The way that you give to serve organizations around us, man, God has been using some of you in incredible ways. And after we sing this song, we're going to just, we're going we're gonna to kind of proclaim the, the idea that, that you can't outgive God. You cannot outgive God. He is worthy. He is worthy of everything that we're able to give back to him. He's worthy of our entire lives. I don't know if you ever heard the story about this little kid who heard the story on tithing, right, and about how it's us giving ourselves back to the Lord. And as the offering plate was being passed, the ushers came down the aisle, and, and the little guy's like, just put the offering plate on the floor. 
And the ushers were like, no, this is for you to put money into. The kid says, no, put the money, uh, put the plate on the floor, and he did. And at that moment, the little boy stood out and stepped right in the offering plate. He says, I'm just giving my life. I'm giving my all to Jesus Christ. He's worthy of it all. He really is. He's worthy of everything that we could possibly give to him. After we sing this song, I want to tell you a few stories, but join me right now as we pray together. God, I want to thank you that you are a giver by nature. And when we stop and we count our blessings, we name them one by one, and it blows our minds uh, just to realize what you've done for us. We can count up our material blessings, our physical blessings, but beyond that are the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Number one, the fact that we are forgiven and we are free from all of our sins the penalty and the penalty of it. God, we stand here today as people who are most gracious, who, who, are, who, are, who are filled with gratitude for your gifts to us. And Lord, we realize that you deserve everything from us. So we want to give back to you this morning in ways that matter. We want to give you our lives. We want to give you our hearts. We want to give you our minds. We want to give you our money. We want to give you everything so that you, so that you might be blessed by the gifts that we give. Father, help us to worship right now as we make this commitment and as we sing, you're worthy, you're worthy of it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.